Hello, and thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with App Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. The CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. In the first five podcasts of our six-part series on COPD, our experts discuss diagnosing patients using the gold recommendations, dual therapy, triple therapy, and the role of inhaled corticosteroids and the management of COPD exacerbations. In the sixth and final episode, our experts turn to the way the COVID-19 pandemic is impacting care for patients with COPD. I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Jill Ohar, Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care Allergy and Immunologic Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and by Dr. Barbara Yon, Adjunct Professor of Family and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Yan is also the Chief Clinical Officer of the COPD Foundation in Washington, D.C. Dr. Ohar will begin our discussion. Hello, and welcome to our discussion on COPD today. I'm Jill Ohar, and I'm joined by Barbara Yan. Hello, Jill. How are you this morning? Well, hello. I, I think this is a, a time when we are all beset with challenges and um, most of us um, have had our practices impacted by uh, COVID-19. So let's start the discussion there. Unfortunately, now in the COVID era, uh, spirometry is a procedure that produces an aerosol. And the aerosol then uh, puts those around uh, that patient, that is the people performing the test, the next guy who comes into the room, uh, et cetera, uh, at risk uh, or at greater risk of catching COVID if the patient who is being tested happens to have uh, COVID and be asymptomatic. Um, there are guidelines out, some of the biggest issues, which are um, letting the room have a complete exchange of air, uh, appropriate uh, personal protective equipment for those administering the test, uh, et cetera. But those are, de- are well delineated and defined Uh, by guidelines that have been produced both independently by the European Respiratory Society and the American Thoracic Society. And and you can get those uh, recent guidelines uh, um, on the American Thoracic Society website. Um, Barbara, what, what have you done to change your practice, your interface with patients uh, to, to compensate for this infection? Well, I think like almost every other practice, we are doing a number of our visits virtually by telehealth. Uh, Our goal is to do them video telehealth visits, but as we know, the internet doesn't always work when it's this busy, so we've had to do some by telephone too. And and that's a real change uh, for doing somewhere between 50 and 80% of our visits that way. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm actually about 99% uh, virtual at this point. I've been asked by patients about payment. Um, 
I, I know that our university has done very well to, to get a third party payer to, to pay for these visits. Have you in private practice had trouble or give me an example of your experiences? Well, it's certainly much better. I mean, when they changed the rules uh, with CMS, the uh, Medicare payment organization, and saying, you know, they didn't have all the rules about rural and not being in a whatever, whatever, and all those kinds of things, that really opened up a lot of opportunities for us to really care for patients. Before that, it was a barrier. Uh, and I think we've done pretty well as the uh, CMS, then the private insurers for people less than age 65 have followed along. So we're doing pretty well, not as, you know, it, like everything else, the payment side of it takes some learning and education too, but we're doing okay. Great. You know, I've actually noticed my no-show rate has dropped dramatically and patients seem to like the opportunity of not having to find a parking space, not having to travel into town and have that one-on-one -on -one with me. Um, I've also noted that patients seem to know, intuitively know how to prepare for these kinds of events uh, by having a technical expert, also known as a grandchild, uh, around, also <laughs> other family members um, to help them remember things that they wanted to talk to the doctor about or to fill in gaps in what the pa patient is actually uh, volunteering. How do you help your patients prepare so that you can get the most out of the visit, the virtual visit? Well, we're learning about that. I think at first we weren't doing a whole lot of anything except making sure they knew how to use the electronics part of it. But I think now we're also making suggestions about uh, there's a form that you may want to fill out. You may want to write your questions down. We have patient portal. So we are using the patient portal. If uh, I want to send somebody a cat, for example, the COPD assessment test, I can now send that out to them on the portal and ask them to have it and fill it out and share it with me even before the visit. Uh, I am suggesting that if uh, they could have a, another family a member around to support them, that that's great because I think most of us realize, especially with people with COPD, we are usually talking to older adults. Uh, some of them have some hypoxia and they get nervous and so they may forget things. Having a family a member around, I find it's really helpful because I may get a second perspective. I may get an additional perspective. Uh, so I agree with you. I like the fact that they do have other people around and that I can actually send things out to them to complete uh, before we start the visit. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned the CAT because I, I find the COPD assessment test to be useful not only uh, in the initial assessment and differential diagnosis, but it helps me decide whether I want to adjust meds. It also sometimes alerts me uh, to the fact that uh, an exacerbation is about to come. Um, I like the idea also that uh, patients, uh, if they don't have a pulse oximeter and a blood pressure cuff, um, and can afford it, that they be urged to, to buy one either at the local drugstore or uh, off the internet. These have been invaluable to me. And I've been actually able in patients who are uh, remotely located or disabled to do pulse oximetry and um, 
and an oxygen titration uh, just with a, a, the phone app um, and um, a patient's own personal pulse oximeter and an oxygen system. The blood pressure is always good. And then uh, to tell patients to have a piece of paper and a pencil close by to write down what your new suggestions are, what your changes in medicines, what kind of tests you're ordering. Um, and if that they are not called by the institution to get them scheduled, um, that, that they have a number to call back, a lifeline, so to speak, so that they can uh, say, well, my doctor said I was supposed to have an appointment in six weeks, and now it's eight, and I haven't heard from you, those kinds of things. What, what, what about you? Well, no, I agree with those things. You know, most of our patients in primary care are not on oxygen, but the pulse oximeter is still helpful, and I think it gives the patient some feeling of comfort to be able to check their pulse box and say, oh, hey, it is normal. It's 92. Uh, this is great. Uh, and so I do like that. I haven't used it, I have to admit, for titrating oxygen because I don't have that many people on oxygen. But I also like doing things like the cat you mentioned, many of the uses. But, you know, I, I like you. See, people with many, many different conditions, and I can't remember all the questions I should ask. Uh, for example, the fatigue question and the trouble sleeping question on CAT, I find those really useful to start a good discussion. Instead of me having to ask them all the questions, I get to see the answers, and then we can just pay attention to the ones that seem to be important to the patient or to their family or ones that I have concern about. So I really like that blood pressure cuffs. Fortunately, many people now have them and I agree that that's helpful. Uh, so there are so many things we can do now and we're just learning to be more clever. Absolutely. I think it's also important at this point to mention that as part of the preparation for patients um, that they have the appropriate equipment to contact you. And, and while uh, a landline will provide a, a telehealth visit, um, a, a smartphone or a computer or a tablet will provide the equipment for um, a virtual visit, a, a visual virtual visit. Um, it's also important, patients don't think this through, that they also need a viable internet signal. So um, I've gotten um, pretty savvy at right off the top asking, do you have a smartphone? Do you have an internet signal? Great. And there are numerous platforms out there. You, you don't have to be at a big university that has its own platform. Um, there are simply things like doximetry that, are, that is uh, very uh, good at, at uh, HIPAA compliance as well as a, a great signal and it's very, very easy to use. Uh, what kind of things or platforms are you using with your uh, virtual visits? Well, it really kind of depends on, uh, you know, we, we have multiple smaller clinics around in some smaller areas plus the more central ones. So it kind of depends on the clinic. Uh, you know, we've used everything from uh, Zoom and Skype uh, to as you said, the doximetry. We've done all different kinds of things. But I liked what you said about reminding uh, the person uh, to get some of those things because they may tell you, well, I don't have a smartphone or iPad, 
but they do, as you pointed out, they do have a grandchild or they have a child that lives reasonably close by that has one of those things and be happy to come over and share with grandma or grandpa and, and help them get on. So we've had our receptionist now uh, doing a bunch of those things, which makes it easier, obviously, for us, maybe harder for the receptionist, but they find they have learned ways to facilitate these visits. So we can do more than just a telephone discussion. So Barbara, a lot of patients have asked me, they've heard on the news or heard from other doctors um, that their home equipment such as their CPAP or their nebulizer machines uh, can become infected with COVID and or, or colonized with COVID and, and may actually give it to them. Um, what are you advising patients with regard to their home equipment? I think they need to continue to clean it as they're, you know, as it's indicated. The idea that your CPAP is going to get the COVID virus on it, it's going to stay there for a long time from somebody else handling your CPAP uh, is not very common because don't take your CPAP equipment. You don't take your nebulizer out to other people. Uh, it usually is only you handling it, maybe one other person in your house. So I don't think that's a huge concern as long as you do clean it as it's indicated to clean. The other thing that I think people are concerned about with the nebulizer is if I use the nebulizer, and I happen to have COVID and I'm asymptomatic, am I gonna give it to everybody else in my house by using the nebulizer? Uh, and yes, that is maybe a concern. Uh, and if you have people in your house while you're using the nebulizer who you don't live with, I wouldn't recommend that. But if you're doing it in the house and it's the people you live with, um, I don't think the nebulizer is that much greater a risk. What are you telling people, Jill? In summary then, um, it's not the nebulizers that are a concern. Um, it's more that uh, if you have COVID, it may be a mechanism to spread it, but certainly just direct contact with household members uh, is, is gonna provide that opportunity. Uh, as well, and probably even uh, to a greater extent. Um, so while if you believe yourself to have COVID, or even if you don't believe yourself to have COVID, um, in this COVID era, taking a nebulizer or a CPAP machine for use in a public area would be um, associated with a potential risk for those around you, not for you, but for those around you that your asymptomatic COVID could be spread. And that's why many hospitals are being uh, very careful about this type of equipment. Uh, but for your home use, it, it really doesn't affect it in any way. Well, yeah, I think you're much more likely to get into trouble with your COPD if you quit using your nebulized medicine or any of your other medicines. One of the other things that I, I'm sure you've heard it too, Jill, is there were some people saying, oh, we have to be careful with the inhaled corticosteroids. We have to be careful with oral steroids. They may increase your risk. And uh, actually, we believe now the opposite is true that 
certainly if you're taking inhaled corticosteroids, it's part of your usual COPD regimen, please keep your patients on that. Uh, you don't want to, if that's what they're using to prevent exacerbations, you don't want to stop it. If they have an exacerbation, you do want to use the oral steroids as indicated. And I believe there's even some data saying with some people with COVID might do better with oral steroids. So I, I really don't think you need to worry about doing what is indicated and what we usually do for an exacerbation. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the, the, the current trend for treatment of, uh, of COVID, if you require oxygen in the hospital, it is systemic steroids and remdesivir. So um, it's certainly not a negative. It's a positive. It's been shown to shorten the course um, and uh, to have a survival benefit. Um, I guess the last thing I'd like to, to sum up with is um, how patients and physicians and, and other healthcare personnel can be involved uh, with um, organizations that, um, that help our patients. So some organizations like the COPD Foundation, um, what kind of support does the foundation provide for healthcare professionals and, and what kind of support does it provide for our patients? Do you wanna take that on the chin and go from there? Oh, I would, you know, as the chief medical officer of the COPD Foundation, I have to admit I might be a little biased, but we do have several resources I think can be very helpful. Uh, and all of us get used to telecommunications and more internet communications. The COPD Foundation has several things that are for healthcare professionals. Uh, one of them is an app. Uh, and this app you can download for free from the Apple app or Google Play. If you just go to COPD Foundation, it's called a pocket guide. And it has several things on there. It has the cat on there, for example. It has the COPD action plan. It has all of the medications uh, and what class they are, what name they are, what doses are available. It has inhaler technique videos uh, so that, you know, I've used this in my office because sometimes they come out with a new inhaler and there's nobody in my office that feels comfortable teaching that inhaler technique. So I can use this video, literally, I get it up on my phone uh, and I share it with the patient for the uh, telehealth visit. I could put it up on my screen and share it uh, and show them uh, what is the proper technique. Now there's also for patients, there is a patient part of this app that is very similar and has a lot of the same information, but it also has for them uh, background information. They can list all their usual meds, all of those kinds of things. It has a place they can write questions they might want to ask uh, their doctor or nurse or whoever at their next visit. Uh, it has the opportunity for them to mark how they're doing each day. Is it a green day, a yellow day, or a red day? It goes up on a calendar. So you can share that calendar with your healthcare professional and they can see how things have been going for the last two weeks, months, three months, whatever you have for data. Uh, so that's important. But also, if you go on to the copdfoundation.org website, you'll find something called 360 Social. 
This is a social platform and the interaction of people living with COPD, whether they're patients or family members, and there's some healthcare professionals on there. People ask each other and they have discussions. They have the kind of discussions that many people with COPD find difficult to have. They don't know anybody else with COPD, so they can't say, well, what are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? What do you think of this? Uh, and they really do get great support and interaction. So I strongly encourage everybody who takes care of people with COPD to share this with their patients and family. Give them extra support because we can't be with them all the time. Absolutely. So this has been a great discussion today, Barbara. I'm so uh, impressed with your insights. Uh, I think it's important to summarize and say that, that COVID is not an excuse uh, to avoid treatment for COPD. And that's both on the part of the physician as, as well as the patient. Patients should be encouraged if, if they're concerned about going into their doctor's office to reach out to their healthcare professional uh, and um, get a virtual visit. Um, this anxiety about meds, that, you know, the inhaled steroids are perfectly safe during the COVID era. And, and so adherence to meds uh, now more than ever uh, it is very, very important. So thanks a lot for joining us today and have a great day. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD6 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. If you've missed any of our episodes or would like to listen to them again, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD to find a listing of all six episodes.